Well, good morning, Harvest. Good to see you in the room. Good to see you. Well, I don't see you on the live stream, but you see me, and we're glad that you're here. It's great to be gathered in the name of the Lord. Amen? And we're going to get into God's Word uh, here, and we're going to be in two uh, different locations, in Luke's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, the two Gospels where we find nativity narratives. We're still in this series uh, with joy and with songs, and I'm eager to get at this with you. And we're going to talk about uh, the theme, the idea of surrender, which is uh, on its face a really negative concept. Uh, we don't think favorably of the idea of surrender. It signals defeat. We think of white flags. We think of hands in the air. Uh, but that is exactly what is needed in our response toward God. In fact, uh, before we became Christians, the scriptures describe us, among other ways, describe us as the enemies of God. And we saw that recently in our study of the book of Romans in Romans 5.10, that we are uh, the enemies of God. But at the moment that we become believers, we, we capitulate to God. We confess our sin. We admit our need. We surrender to Him. We're forgiven. We're saved. And we're actually declared to no longer be His enemies, but in fact, we're declared to be the friends of God. Beyond that, beyond just friends with God, we gain entrance into the family. We're given His name. And we're made to be sons and daughters of the King. All because we surrendered. That's the paradox of surrender. It is that in surrendering, we actually gain the victory. And we're going to examine what surrender to Christ looks like in these two nativity narratives of this morning. We're going to look at the shepherds, and we're going to look at my personal favorites, the magi, uh, while also looking at the Christmas carol. That's the nature of this series. We're looking at the text, and we're looking at some of these favorite songs that we've had over the years. But one of the songs that we wanted to look at is the one we're looking at today, In the Bleak Midwinter. And let me ask you the question, how many people know this song, In the Bleak Midwinter? You're all going to know it by the end of today, and you're going to be blessed by it, I believe, because it's a pretty profound Christmas carol. Uh, In the Bleak Midwinter uh, was actually a poem written by Christina Rossetti. She was an English woman of Italian descent, and uh, she wrote this as a poem and uh, called it A Christmas Carol originally. Uh, she was a devoted believer in Jesus Christ, and she published the poem in 1872, and it wasn't until 1906, 12 years after Rossetti had passed into the presence of the Lord, uh, that it was actually set to music. And we'll sing it, um, or at least it'll be sung for us in response uh, to this message uh, at the end of our service today. And it's going to be put there as a signal. It's our white flag. It's our hands in the air. It's a signal of our own surrender to Jesus Christ. And so let's read the two passages. And I want to read the Luke passage first, and then I'll read the Matthew passage. So we'll be in Luke chapter 2. Going to do it in that order because that's the chronological order in the way that these things happened. And so Luke 2, uh, 8 to 20, and then Matthew 2, 1 to 12. Luke 2, 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Then Matthew 2 Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right, we're going to talk about surrender, and we're going to talk about what it means for us once we've surrendered our heart to Jesus Christ. And so, once I've surrendered my heart to Jesus first, I will embrace the simplicity of faith. We, as human beings, tend to complicate things. We take the simplicity of a thing, and we add so much to it to complicate it beyond what God ever intended. And uh, when we think about the church, we add structures to the church, we add systems, we add policies to the simple notion of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, what it means to have that initial faith in Christ, to be baptized as a testimony to that, to then live for Christ, to serve Christ, to worship Him, the simplicity of all of that, we add so much to it. We think about the grandeur of the cathedrals. Here we are 2,000 years removed from the simplicity of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Cheryl and I, uh, two summers ago, we had the opportunity to be in London, England. We went to Westminster Abbey, and you see the grandeur of it, and it is spectacular, let me tell you. It's overwhelming, really, to look at all of this, but you realize that that is so far from the manger. 
So far from the simplicity of what our faith really is, the grandeur of cathedrals, the priesthood that's been established, the institutional church of statements and creeds and and convocations and synods and all these things that we've created, none of which are bad in and of themselves, but they cloud the simplicity of the faith that is described in the New Testament. And nothing, nothing seems simpler and purer than the nativity. It's just a baby born and laid in a feed trough. And for the shepherds in Luke's gospel chapter 2, they're just doing their jobs. They They work and live around the area near Bethlehem, which was a shepherding area. They were out in the field, the Bible tells us. They were on the job. They were keeping watch over their flock by night. They had to stay awake at night to ward off the predators and the dangers that were there for the sheep. And it was an angel in the midst of them being awake and doing their job. An angel appears. And in that moment, unsurprisingly, those shepherds tend to be a very hardy bunch, able to ward off all these predators. At the sight of an angel, they were terrified. It said they were filled with great fear. And of course, the first words that the angel speaks to them, verse 10, are, you don't have to fear. What I actually am bringing you is great news. And this great news leads to incredible, exceedingly great joy, not just for you, but for the entire world. And he tells them, The angel tells them about the baby who was born in Bethlehem as the long-awaited Messiah. In verse 12, they go off. They find the baby, just as the angel had said, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. In verse 13 and 14, the choir shows up. Not just now the single angel who's brought this message, but as if to reinforce the message Hopefully now they're no longer fearful, but a whole host of the heavenly armies of God, these angels, this choir shows up. But please note, though hark the herald angels sing, there's no indication in the text that they actually sang. It says that they said, did I just ruin another Christmas carol for you? They didn't actually sing. It's not in the scriptures that they actually sing. They, they said, they said, they spoke. The praises of God. And when you think about this scene, it can't get any simpler than a baby born in humble circumstances who would save the world. All the complex philosophies of this world, any of us who have taken high school, college, or graduate courses in philosophy know just how complex and confusing these philosophies actually can be, how speculative they are, how many dead ends you end up on as you consider how thinkers think and how they expect us to think. They leave us scratching our heads. And all the complex philosophies of this world will bow down to the simple truth that we find in 1 John 4.9. God sent His Son. That's it. God 
sent his son. The same situation for the Magi. They show up in Matthew chapter 2, the first part there. They show up after, notice, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And um, he, they show up probably not the night of, not the night of for sure. They show up some 18 to 24 months later based on several factors that we read in all of these accounts. But it was not the night that Jesus was born, even though all of the Christmas books, all of the Christmas pageants, all of the Christmas plays, all the Christmas movies, all the Christmas specials, all of them depict the Magi there on that night. Now, for those of you who are new to Harvest, okay, the people laughing are the people who are not new to Harvest. This is Pastor Todd's annual rant about when the Magi arrived. So this has been a thing for me over the years, and, and I'm, I, I want us to really embrace the actual truth about the nativity. And I'm so grateful, in fact, for those harvest families who have kept their nativity sets pure and orthodox and true to the Scriptures by placing the Magi at some distance away from the manger at a different part of the house or a different section of the room. And so what I thought I would do this year is to reinforce the truth of the Scriptures by showing how you all are applying the Scriptures in real life with your own nativity sets. And so let's start with, actually, this is, um, let's, let's look at some of these. I, I wasn't able to get to all of them. There were so many submissions, but these are some. This is actually my nativity set um, at home. This one's in my study at home. And, um, and so you can see on the left is the nativity set with Mary and Joseph, the child, and the shepherds. That's the night of. That's on my credenza over to my right when I sit at my desk. And then the Magi sit on my desk with my theology books to my left because they haven't gotten there yet. You understand what's going on now? New people, y'all get this? The old people are like, every year he's got to do this. And that is true. Um, And then Mallory submitted this, and I don't know if she works at this pharmacy or if this is her pharmacy in Collingwood, but they put up, um, congrats to a pharmacy in retail putting up a nativity scene, right? That's good. Um, but the, I don't, the thing I don't get here is the Magi are coming from all directions. <laughs> I just don't get that. They're coming from both sides, and they do look a little close to me. All right, and then here's a nativity properly set up by the Walters family. That's better. The Magi are not quite there. And then this is a quote from uh, the, the Walters family. We don't, this is from the kids, okay, the kids. We don't know for sure if there are three wise men. Exactly, kids. That's some good theology right there. We don't know. All right. And then uh, this family, and uh, they're going to remain nameless, but they were in the 830 service. And they say, this is their Fisher Price set, but they said, listen to this. This just devastates me. Family traditions trump the harvest away. Doesn't that just hurt to read? I mean, I'm not even sure if these people are saved. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Family traditions trump the harvest way in regards to the Magi. The Fisher-Price Little People set is steeped in the Magi placement tradition. That's what she says. It is also not worth the tantrum of a toddler and some adults in the family (laughs) to put these out of order. All right. Then the Vermeulen family, they have a problem as well. They have a theological problem caused by glue. 
on this family heirloom. Uh, they cannot correct the biblical inaccuracy here without damaging the structure. So I feel bad for the Vermulans. They're stuck with their bad theology. The Tyson Norman family submitted this one. This is pretty entertaining. They totally get it in terms of the Magi being at a distance and Joseph and Mary there kind of watching for them. Um, but also that Magi doing the selfie is just like he's right on top of it, right? I love it. It's a pretty good selfie. Then Felix and Rudy's family. Hey, I am still in a sermon, by the way, just, so, just in case any of you forgot. We're going we're gonna to get back to that. F- Felix and Rudy's family sent this. The Magi are in the picture. Can you find them? You see the Magi there? See them? Way over on the left. They're still a long ways off. I love that. Some solid theology right there. All right. And then the Holmes family. Here's my nativity with Magi on the journey. Not sure if you can even see them, but they're on, they're, they're, they are the three. And then she's very quick to say, that's how many came in the set. Okay, there were three. Um, there are three figures at the far left of the photo on the other side of the mantle. And she adds, they still have four stocking holders to travel past. And I hear each one takes about six months. <laughs> so that timing's about spot on. That's good math. All right. And then the Ferris family. The Ferris family, they're on a whole other level, the Magi. I mean, they, they're, they're going to have to repel down to see Jesus. <laughs> Several families have just Joseph marrying the baby. The Kucharski family said, our nativity set is obviously just after the birth, as there aren't even shepherds there, never mind the Magi, so that's accurate. And then the Collier family uh, my in laws have been gifting me different pieces over the last couple of Christmases. Uh, still a lot of pieces left, so I don't even own the Magi yet. They're still a long ways off at the Amazon headquarters. <laughs> and my only caution there is Amazon does have one-day shipping, so they might still get there too soon. And then finally this, and I feel a bit, I feel a bit bad about this one, the Dillariva family. There were Magi with the set, but my oldest daughter heard Pastor Todd on this last year and hid them, and I still haven't found them. <laughs> So here's hoping the Delariva family find the Magi for this year's uh, Christmas uh, celebration. But let's thank those families for submitting. <laughs> so all of that to say, that's my annual rant on the Magi. I hope you all uh, understand uh, where I'm coming from on that. And so they came to Herod. Here's the Magi. They come and they ask, where is he who has been born uh, king of the Jews? And they were so interested. And understand the Magi are, are Chaldeans. They're Babylonians. And they live over in that part of the world. But about 500 years prior to this, five, 600 years before, the Jews had been carried away into exile in Babylon. And when they did, they carried all their cultural and, and traditions there with them. They brought the Torah with them and the scriptures and the prophets. And the Chaldeans, these Magi especially, were so interested in learning. They read the Torah. They read the prophecies. They read the Old Testament. And they learned from the Jews and they saw this prophecy about a star that would come before the coming of a king. And they latched on to it because the Magi, they were part astronomer, part astrologer. They were advisors to kings. In fact, they were king makers, very influential people. And they saw a prophecy about a star. We we're interested in stars. A, a prophecy about a king. We're really interested in kings. And the whole thing came together. And so they learned it from the Jews. The Jews go back to Israel after the exile. And then the, these magi, they're waiting hundreds of years. They're waiting and they're watching the sky looking for this star 
to appear. Which, by the way, this year is a very interesting year because in 2020, what is commonly understood to be the Christmas star is making an appearance. You go, well, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But it is a big deal because uh, this conjunction, it's largely believed that the Christmas star is the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, the two brightest lights in our sky aside from the moon. Those two come together very rarely, and they look and appear as one. And this happened the last time in the 1600s, but because of where the sun was positioned, we couldn't actually see the conjunction happen. The last time it happened where it was visible on earth was in 1226. This is a fairly rare occurrence. And so it's happening this year. It's happening on December 21st. If the weather conditions are right, you're going to be able to see what is commonly understood to be the Christmas star. There's a link in the notes that you're going to be able to track a Toronto Star article about it and know all the details concerning it. So this Christmas star, these guys, these astrologer, astronomer guys are watching for this star. The prophecy was in Numbers 24, 17. If you're taking notes, you can track that down. And they wanted to come as soon as that star appeared, knowing a king was born, they wanted to come and worship him. And so these magi are waiting for this to happen. And as soon as they see the star, it wasn't like the star needed to kind of track with them and and have them follow it. They're in Babylon. The star appeared. It was the Jews. We're going to Jerusalem. They saw the star. They went to Jerusalem. To get to Jerusalem, they're going to ask where the king actually is born. And so that's what happens in Matthew 2, 3 to 8. Herod told them the exact location. Micah 5, 2 is the prophecy that we read. He got that after he consulted with the chief priests and the scribes. They heard a prophecy. They watched the stars, and they went to worship the king. They heard a prophecy. They heard the word of God. They watched the stars to see the fulfillment of that, and then they went to worship the king. It's very simple. The simplicity of that should not be lost on us. You know a truth. You act on it. That is the essence of the simple faith that God has provided for us. Now, when we think about this song, that's the shepherds coming in simplicity. That's the magi coming in simplicity, the simplicity of faith. And Rossetti's poem is, the, is, is a beautifully simple song, at least on the surface, with layers of meaning for us to unpack. But it exposes the truth about our dire situation as human beings and the reason why God would send his son. The first stanza is in the bleak midwinter. Frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron. Water like a stone. Snow had fallen. Snow on snow. Snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter. Long ago. Rossetti's obviously seeking to picture that time before Messiah comes, before the child is born, and the desperate state that humanity finds itself in. But I read those words, and I read this year. I read my life. I understand that this is really about where we're at right now. I know they were waiting for the coming of Messiah, but I feel like the thing I want more than anything else is the coming of Christ in, the, in, his, in his soon coming. Amen? Because I feel like I'm still living in the bleak midwinter, even with the hope of Christ. And when you get right down to it, when you start to understand all of this, you you see that life is not actually as complex as we've made it. We may muddle it, but it all comes down to the fact that we're sinners. 
that life is hard, and that we need God to save us. It's no more complicated than that. And everything else in our lives, it's just details. It's just details. We need to surrender to the simplicity of the incarnation. God made flesh. We need to surrender to the simplicity of knowing that Jesus Christ sacrificed His life on the cross for us. We need to surrender to the simplicity of He was dead and now He's alive and the tomb is empty and we have the resurrection power available to us. We need to surrender to the simplicity of Jesus Christ is coming again and let everything in our lives be defined by His return. Your life and mine All of history, all of it, comes down to the Savior. The day is coming. The Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. The day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's as simple as it is. And how much better that we would confess that with our mouths now and bend our knee now rather than waiting for that day when it will be compelled on everyone. I want to do it from my heart. So that's the simplicity that we're talking about here, the simplicity of our faith. And once I've surrendered to that, notice next, I'll also be in awe of the magnificence of God. Life is not that complex, that's for sure, but God certainly leaves us in awe of who He is. And Carol goes on to say this, our God Heaven cannot hold Him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when He comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. The the stanza actually breaks down into two parts, the now and the not yet. The latter part is the now. That's where we're living. The simplicity of our lives right now. But the not yet is the time we await to see Christ fully reigning on His throne and sin completely dealt with and eternity in full swing. It is the now and the not yet. We think about the majesty of who our God is. Heaven can't contain Him. No earth sustain Him. Heaven and earth fleeing away from Him. The dedication of the temple, King Solomon was praying Solomon had built this glorious temple. This is in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. And he prays this, but God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? We're building this temple for him. Can God indeed dwell here? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon was realistic about how Massive, how magnificent God really was and is. That the heavens are His throne. The earth is His footstool. He stands outside of all that He had created. We have to be in awe of the magnificence of God in light of the humble circumstances we find ourselves in. And all of this is simple to actually say, but it leaves us in awe of Him. 
For those of you who are really into literature and poetry, you're going to like this next part. As Karen Swallow Pryor describes what's happening in this stanza, in fact, in the whole poem, we're only looking at three, three of the five stanzas. The stark language, she says, of the poem belies the intensity and complexity of its imagery and feeling. Indeed, beneath a deceptively simple surface, at the heart of the poem is a profound paradox. The juxtaposition of simple earthly elements, wind, water, snow, and hay, with the ineffability of the incarnation, points toward the very crux of Christmas. Might made humble, word become flesh, God with us. And it takes us right back to what the Apostle John said. God sent His Son. The shepherds were so in awe of this, the text tells us that they made known everything they heard and saw. This angel came, then there was all the hosts of angels, and they told us a thing, and we went and saw it. And when they saw it, and they came back, they told all the other shepherds, they told all the villagers, they told anybody who would listen, their entire family, they told them all. They made it known. And it it says that people wondered at what the shepherds told them. They were thinking about it. Maybe criticizing them, maybe wondering if they had been drinking too much. They wondered, they questioned everything the shepherds had said. And the shepherds, for their part, just kept glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. Their lives forever transformed by the experience of that night, transformed by the magnificence of God. The Magi, too, in Matthew 2, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw the star. And when they got to the house, not the animal enclosure, when they got to the house and they saw the child, not the baby, with Mary, they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. That needs to be our response to the magnificence of God. And so many people today, like right in this moment, so many people, and I'm talking to Christians as well, worrying and angry, and fearful at all that's happened this year. A terrible year for sure. But if we would focus instead, I'm, I'm wondering how many of these things would just fall off if we would focus instead on the magnificence of God. I wonder how many of those things that we're so angry about and we're so frustrated by and we're so upset by and we're worrying about, I just wonder how many of those things would just melt away if we just thought more about God. Nothing that's happened this year should cause a Christian to be upset whatsoever. God is sovereign, is he not? God is sovereign. God is king. God is on the throne. He is in control. History is playing out exactly as it should. God's perfect plan is right on schedule. There's not a thing that's happened in this year that has caught God by surprise at all. Would we agree with that? Well, when we surrender to it, 
beyond just agreeing with it, when we surrender to it, when we surrender to Him, that's going to leave us in awe of His magnificence. And the cares of this world will melt away, no matter how heavy they are, no matter how bleak the midwinter is. And then finally, once I've surrendered my heart to Jesus, notice, I'll bring Him the gift of obedience. We kind of skimmed over a couple of verses here regarding the shepherds in verses 15 and 16 when the angels went away from them into heaven. So this is before they went off to see the baby. The shepherds said to one another, they just get the word from the angels, let us go over to Bethlehem, let's do this thing. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known. There's no doubting. I wonder if it's really happened. Let's just go check it out just to see. No, 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 no. This happened. They believe it, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, the thing about the shepherds, they're at a great disadvantage because they don't know it's Christmas, right? They just get this word from the angel. They don't realize they're walking into the very first Christmas party. So they don't, they don't have any gifts. They're not going to stop. They're not even going to think to stop and buy something on the way. There's no time to, to you know, get Amazon up on their phone and have something shipped. They don't know about Santa. They don't know about stockings. They don't know about buy local. They don't know about any of it. They didn't know they were supposed to bring gifts. But in fact, whether they realized it or not, they were bringing a gift. They were bringing the gift that God wants more than anything else from us. At the word of the angels, they brought the gift of obedience. They went, notice, it says here, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just as the angels had said. And God has repeatedly told us in the scriptures that he's far more interested in our heart obedience than he is with all this outward observance. That religious rituals, even ones that he's prescribed for us, are not that important to him. Especially not if our heart's not in it. What God wants from us is simple obedience, the gift of obedience. The Magi, they brought actual gifts, but to be fair, it's 18 to 24 months later, so it's either the second or third Christmas. Correct? They're coming later. They know to bring gifts. You know, I'm just messing with you, right? But they bring gifts because they're kingmakers. They're coming to see a king. So they're bringing these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are very extravagant gifts. And Joseph and Mary, who have now settled into life in Bethlehem, they've got a home, they're living in it, and he's working. But they're a very simple, humble family. And these kingmakers from Babylon are coming, bringing these very extravagant gifts for them, for the king. But these were no doubt used in a few short days, they would find out that they had to flee Bethlehem quickly, that Herod intended on murdering their child, that he had such evil intent, and they needed to run quickly to Egypt for refuge. They couldn't have funded that trip. They couldn't have made it apart from what the Magi provided for them. And so this gift becomes necessary while also having all the symbolism attached to it that was fitting for this king, for the Messiah. Now this begs the question, both the shepherds and the magi, forget the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, what both brought was the gift of obedience. 
And it now begs the question of each one of us, what are you bringing Jesus this year? I mean, you've all made your Christmas list, presumably. You've done your shopping. You've, you've wrapped presents. You've put them under the tree. You've had them shipped to people, whatever it is that you've done. But I wonder how many of us have paused to say, what am I actually giving to the Lord this year? What's my gift for Him? And, and keep in mind that this isn't to earn His favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn His favor. That's a grace gift from Him. That if we offer Him anything, and we should, it's out of simple appreciation. It's gratitude for what He's done, and it's an expression of love towards our God. It is, in fact, an act of worship. I'm not earning any favor. I'm, not, I'm certainly not attempting to pay him back for anything because that would be ridiculous. The best I can give him, the best that you can give him, is to obey his word. And the final stanza of the song asks the question that we need to ask. What can I give him? Poor as I am? If I were a shepherd... I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him, give my heart. It's all about the surrender of your heart to Jesus Christ. Not just this Christmas, but every day that you're walking with him. As they preach this message, of course, we're just hours away from our region being put into red. And if you're like me, you're probably a little bit upset on Friday. I think many of us had a strong reaction to what we heard. That we're facing greater restrictions for Christmas, and each one of us is wrestling through the implications of that, what that means for us when it comes to Christmas Day. Perhaps this pandemic year has compelled us to do something that we have been unwilling to do ourselves. To simplify things. For Christmas to be a little less commercialized. Less busy. Less frantic. A Christmas celebration that is more in the bleak midwinter. One where we can contemplate the magnificence of God a little more clearly because we've taken away many of the trappings that have plagued us in the past from finding the simplicity of Christmas in how we celebrate with big meals and huge crowds and the comings and goings and the maxing out of our credit cards and the excesses of eating and drinking. For Mary and Joseph, a stable place sufficed. Could it be that a simplification of Christmas is needed? Could it be that God has provided it for us because we wouldn't do it for ourselves? Rather than fighting it, rather than complaining about it, maybe we would just embrace it as a gift from Him to us.
and celebrate the Savior's birth differently this year. More simply. Let me pray. Our God and Father, we are uh, grateful for your kindness toward us again. The kindness in speaking to us with great clarity in your word. Father, I do pray that as we consider these things, that you would uh, guide each of us in our own personal responses to what we've heard. Father, that we would embrace the truth of your word. That we would discover or rediscover the simplicity of the child born. That you sent your son for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you.